Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to The Rest is History, the podcast that needs no vaccine passport to roam freely across the boundaries and the centuries. And today we're heading back in time three and a half thousand years, and we're going to be starting by talking about a boy who took the throne in Egypt when he was about eight years old and proceeded to marry his half-sister. Or did he? So much of his life is shrouded in mystery. Our subject, or at least the subject that we're going to kick off with, is of course Tutankhamun, who's captivated our imaginations since Howard Carter discovered his tomb 99 years ago. But of course, there's more to Tutankhamun than the boy himself or the tomb. Tom Holland is with me. Tom, this is a subject I know you know loads about and has fascinated you since you were a kid. Let's start with just Tutankhamun, because he's the one pharaoh that everybody has heard of. What is it about him, do you think, that, that has seized our imagination? Yeah, he's the most famous pharaoh by miles. And yet, as a when he was alive, he, he didn't reign for very long. He was a very obscure pharaoh. And the reason, of course, that he is famous is that he is the pharaoh whose um, tomb full of treasure survived the depredations of robbers. And so when we think about the glory of the pharaohs, this kind of golden realm, we, we, we think of Tutankhamun because there we get a glimpse of the incredible wealth, the sophistication, the, uh, the, the beauty of that incredible civilization. But on top of that, I think there are two further reasons why Tutankhamun is so famous and why his story is so haunting. The first is the story of how it was found. So the process yeah. by which Howard Carter came to uncover the tomb, you know, it, it goes back years and decades and it's kind of the last gasp. Howard Carter is about to have his funding cut and then he discovers this stairway and he peel away the, the dust and they get down and there's a, a, a door and it's intact. And you've got the story of the, the curse and everything. So that's brilliant. But I think even more than that, what makes it fascinating from the historical point of view is that obscure though Tutankhamun is, he is an actor in what is perhaps the most remarkable, extraordinary enigmatic period in Egyptian history, which is associated with the the guy who was probably his father, um, a a pharaoh called Akhenaten, who was married to um, a a, a queen whose face is almost as famous as Tutankhamun's, Nefertiti's. And Akhenaten is famous as um, the pharaoh who essentially initiates an entirely exceptional process of revolution that was so shocking and upsetting to the Egyptians that they buried his name in oblivion. And Tutankhamun's name was buried as well. And that's basically why his tomb survived, because he was forgotten. About. Okay. Don't tell us what Akhenaten did, because for listeners who don't know, that can be our big reveal later on when we get into the Akhenaten story. Because I agree with you. I think the Akhenaten story is one of the 
I think it's without any question one of the single most interesting stories in all world history and I'm talking about thousands of years um, but let's just focus for a second about Howard Carter. Now Howard Carter's story it's interesting isn't it because it's one that all children learn certainly all British children um, and what is it about it do you think that you know he's working for Lord Carnarvon I mean I can remember this from the kids I read as a from the books I read as a kid you know he's working for Lord Carnarvon and there's the story about the curse and the dog barking in Cairo or whatever or that's right he's dying <laughs> yes. and all this sort of yes so so how much tell us I mean you'll know much more about this than me tell us some of the sort of background to all this so Carter was what he was a professional archaeologist no no he wasn't uh, and this is part of the romance of it is that he was an illustrator um, and he went out as oh. quite a young man um, to Egypt. And there he met um, the brilliantly named Flinders Petrie, um, who, who was an archaeologist. And Flinders Petrie was working at a site called Amarna, which is about halfway between Luxor and Cairo. And now don't spoil the reveal no, by I'm, telling I, I, us about Amarna. I, I, I won't. But um, so this is a part of what ha- Howard Carter immediately gets gripped by. And, and, and this is a buried city that hasn't been excavated before. So it's kind of virgin territory. And Carter is doing the illustrations for this. And he just get, completely gets the bug. He stays on. He, um, he ends up being employed. The French at the time are running the antiquity service in Egypt for kind of complicated colonial reasons. And Carter is, um, is employed by this um, uh, colonial French agency, basically to, to, as a superintendent of antiquities, um, until he gets into a punch-up with some French tourists who are essentially being incredibly rude to an Egyptian. And Carter takes the Egyptian side and gets dismissed for this. So it, the sense that... It's a good story. Yeah, it's, it's so, good story. So, so Carter is kind of on the side of the angels, but he's a, he's a temperamental, difficult man. And from that point on, he stays out in Egypt and he basically hires himself out to visiting grandees, billionaires, Americans, British, whoever, who essentially coming to Egypt and um, they get give, they, they buy kind of the right to excavate certain areas and they employ Carter. And there's a guy called Theodore Davies, who's an American millionaire who comes to the Valley of the Kings and Carter uh, helps him out. Um, Theodore Davies um, discovers all kinds of fascinating tombs. Um, he, uh, he, he, one in particular, KV 55, so King Valley, Valley of the Kings 55, is, is an enigmatic tomb that I'm sure we'll come to with um, a, a, a mummy in it. It's unclear whether it's male or female. It seems to, there seems to have been some process of desecration going on. No one's quite sure about it. Um, Davis uh, discovers this in 1912. He then thinks that, um, or is it 1907? Can't remember. Anyway, we'll have to check. Um, he then uh, reckons that, that the whole of the Valley of the Kings, has every tomb has been discovered. But Carter, because there is a link between Tutankhamun and Amarna that we'll come to, he's particularly aware of the fact that Tutankhamun's tomb has not been found, that this is the one tomb that might be discovered. And so when Lord Carnarvon comes out, who is, is there for his health, you know, the Egyptian climate is seen as being very healthy, he comes out, um, he employs Carter. Carter says, look, let's go for Tutankhamun. And they dig and they dig and they dig and they don't find it. And years go by and 1922 comes around and Carnarvon says to Carter, look, this is going to be the last season. Uh, and Carter goes, OK. And that's the jeopardy. And then Carter, you know, Carter discovers it. And he has to wait for Lord Carnarvon to come over. Um, 
they go down secretly without telling anyone and Carter kind of opens up the uh, the, the, the door and the Carnarvon's behind him and says, you know, can you see anything? And Carter says, you know, there's this pause. And then he says, wonderful, f- I can see things. I can see wonderful things. And it, the romance of it is so incredible. It's And it's 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 the kind of the paradigm of what people imagine an archaeologist's life is is like but it never is isn't it, it? Never i mean that's, is. The, that's the tragedy it, it never is but no other archaeologist yes. ever has that no no i mean no no um, archaeologist has ever has has ever had that kind of howard carter experience and then you throw into the mix the story of the curse which is that uh, the story goes there's, there's this guy who is a rival of uh, of carter's called arthur Eagle, who was um employed by the daily mail dominic so very much the lowest of the low uh, to cover the uh, <laughs> to cover the excavation, and Carter and Carnarvon has given exclusive rights to the Times. So Eagle is there. He's resentful of Carter for this great find. He's crossed. They were owned by the same group yeah, in those days in the nineteen twenties. That's the irony. He's crossed that the Times has got the exclusive, and so he sees Carnarvon going in, and he's supposed to have said, "If he goes in in that mood, I give him you know six weeks." And then the story goes that he nicks himself shaving, it gets infected. And this nick supposedly exactly models a nick that will be found on the face of Tutankhamun. You're right that the, the moment he dies, um, there's a power cut across Cairo and his dog back in uh, back in High Clear, which is that which is uh, Downton Abbey, um, howls. And this is the story of, uh, of, of, of the curse. But I mean, Carter, obviously, the, the person who proves that the curse isn't real is, is Carter because he does not die of it. Um, <laughs> how disappointing yeah it is disappointing. okay so th- there's also i mean obviously with tutan carmen a-, a huge element of the appeal um again before we get into that and art and stuff the huge elements of the appeal is that he's a child is that he's a boy pharaoh and we always have this well, he's kind of late teens isn't kind he of... but he becomes what he's eight or nine when he yeah. becomes yeah he kind pharaoh, of dies about I when suppose. he's about 17 i think so in other words he's the same age as a lot of children when they first read yes about Tutankhamun and it's that sort of sense of doomed youth I think that people it's the it's the sort of the contrast between the doomed youth and then the gilded but ossified splendor yeah of the remains that I think we often like about the Tutankhamun story and of course that's why we go to museums and we and we and we enjoy seeing all the artifacts but the intellectual appeal of the story and this is where we come to the big reveal is his is it's really his father who's this fellow called Akhenaten who must be one of the most fascinating and mysterious characters in all human history. And I know you are passionate about this, so why don't you tell us the, you know, give us an outline for people who don't know anything about ancient Egypt. Give us the story. Okay, so Akhenaten is the son of a pharaoh called Amenhotep, which means um, basically Amun is pleased. And Amun, Amun Re is the... By, by by the time that this is so this is um kind of 1370 1360 bc um it's in the 18th dynasty of egypt and uh egypt is so egypt's been going for like yeah it's been going for more than a thousand years yes 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 uh it's an incredibly ancient civilization and under the 18th dynasty it's incredibly powerful um egypt had been occupied by uh, asiatic invaders called hyksos um, and they had been expelled by the ancestor of the 18th dynasty. And um, not only had the Asiatics been expelled, but the pharaohs had then expanded northwards and established a kind of loose empire reaching right the way up into Syria. And 
Amenhotep III is kind of like the Louis the Fourteenth of ancient Egypt. He is the Sun King. Uh, everything about him is golden. He's wealthy. He rules Massive for a very, statues. very long time. Huge statues. So if you go to the British Museum, um, the, the, there's a huge kind of head of him with this kind of enigmatic, rather self-satisfied smile, as well you might be if you were Amenhotep III. Um, and the priests of Amun are basically... Um, you know, they're, they're massive. They're a kind of massive power in the land. They, uh, they run these huge, vast temples. Um, and Amenhotep III's son, who will succeed him and become Amenhotep IV, um, is actually committed to another god. And a few years into his reign, he signals this by changing his name from Amenhotep. Amun is pleased to Akhenaten, which means basically you do stuff for the for, for the Aten. And the Aten is the disc of the sun. And Akhenaten's devotion to the Aten is such that he basically launches a kind of an attack against Ammon. He closes the temples to Ammon. He moves to this place that now is called Amarna, where Howard Carter and Flinders Petrie were digging, and which at the time was called, um, Akhenaten calls it Akhetaten, the horizon of the Aten. And Akhenaten builds an entire city there devoted to the worship of this, this god Aten. And the thing that's astonishing about this and something that has kind of echoed through, you know, Freud writes about it, all kinds of people write about it, is that essentially Akhenaten is, is a monotheist. And he's a monotheist who is reacting against the vast array of gods that the Egyptians have always taken for granted. And he writes these kind of hymns. We assume that Akhenaten writes them. We don't absolutely know this for sure. Yeah. But he's conventionally the great, the great the hymn to the Aten. And he hails the Aten as sole god without another beside him. And in the context of, you know, of, of Egyptian assumptions about the universe, about the role played by the gods, this is so revolutionary and that Egypt is left kind of stunned by it. And when Akhenaten dies, the process of kind of rolling this revolution back begins immediately because Tutankhamun is initially called um, Tutankhaten. So Tutankhaten is the living, living image of the Aten. Tutankhamun, he becomes the living image of Amun. And Tutankhamun becomes the kind of figurehead of a counter-revolution, which then um, he dies, he gets succeeded, probably by his, his great-uncle, a guy called Ai. Um, then Ai dies, and he gets in succeeded in turn by a guy called Horemheb, who is a, a kind of general... And it's under Horemheb that um, the entire memory of Akhenaten and his revolution basically gets flattened. And Akhenaten, Tutankhamun, I, they all get written out of the king lists so that, you know, a few centuries on, although there are very interesting kind of echoes of the horror of this that are buried, Akhenaten's own name and Tutankhamun's name get completely forgotten. And no one has any idea that they existed until Flinders Petrie arrives at Amarna and starts excavating and finding, um, digging up all this stuff. And basically, that's uh, the paradox is that that is what enables Tutankhamun to survive. So there's so much to unpack here. Maybe we'll get to the, the purely religious stuff, which I know you're fascinated by, um, and the influence of Akhenaten and the way that people have tried to 
understand, you know, is he the father of all our monotheistic religions and, and all the rest of it? But just looking back on this as a sort of historian of the 20th century, what's really striking to me about it is you have this guy who come, you know, he's had a, a very domineering father who was the great pharaoh, um, who was kind of, I think, deified in his own lifetime, um, Amenhotep III. Then Akhenaten comes in, he says, uh, there's a new belief system, um, a new cultural form, so there's a new kind of art. If you see the images of him, I mean, they're really weird, elongated yeah, kind right. of faces. Yeah. And, you know, he's, so he, the art has changed. He wants, has an entirely new city in the desert, a new site that's away from the old capitals. Uh, the temples are changed, so they're open-air temples. Everybody can be seen. You're being surveyed the whole time by the sun, but also by his police and by his kind of security forces and stuff. I mean, he feels a, a disturbingly modern figure. I mean, he's somebody that if you put him alongside, you know, Pol Pot, I mean, it sounds like a ludicrous comparison. But again, somebody who wanted to completely remake society in the service of an ideology. Akhenaten, you know, you can paint him as an ancestor for modern totalitarians. Or am I or do you think well, I'm being unfair? Well, to? I think I think you are being a bit unfair because I think one of the one of the fascinations of this period is also the frustrations. That we there's just enough material to sense that there's something incredibly important and fascinating going on here. But there's not quite enough material to have a definite sense of what was actually going on. And we can't ultimately know for sure, you know, really what the, what the revolution involved. We can't know for sure who, you know, even whether Tutankhamun really was Akhenaten's son. All these kind of relationships are up for grabs. And therefore, the temptation is always, when you look at someone like Akhenaten, is to back project your own assumptions. So um, to to begin with, um, in the kind of high Victorian period, the kind of late Victorian period, um, people associated Akhenaten with a kind of Victorian spirituality. He was was kind of seen as an effete... Uh, lover of peace who hasn't had the uh, the cojones to um, to stand up and fight <laughs> for for the Egyptian empire and what added to that and is that partly because of his statues Tom yeah well it's because partly he because of so the... weird and androgynous in his yeah it's partly because of the but partly because of the hymn to the Aten where he's he he it's it's kind of quite a universalist hymn so there's the sense of kind right. of Egypt as being radically different from the lands beyond has gone um, and you know this is kind of very kind of radically distinctive approach but it's also as you say yes so the the Amarna art is incredibly odd and Akhenaten is portrayed with kind of a huge great cranium um uh often with kind of hint of breasts um a woman's hips and buttocks uh, and then very kind of thin spindly legs and when it's on engravings, these look odd. But when you get them as statues and and st- huge statues that were kind of raised at Karnak and which then got buried beneath the rubble and got extracted um, by by twentieth century excavations, and they're they're I think the the strangest works of art that I've ever seen. They they kind yeah. of dominate. They're really the, un- they're, they're, they're incredible. really unsettling, aren't they? So they're in the Cairo Museum in uh, and to stand beneath them and look up at them, you feel the there's a sense of power there. And so people have wondered, well, what the hell was going on here? And so people have said, well, maybe he had kind of a variety of medical conditions and this is what it's portraying. 
But actually, I don't think it's anything to do with that. So again and again, through through pharaonic history, you look at a, a pharaoh and you think, oh, you know, there's one who's got huge ears. He looks like Prince Charles. Maybe that's what he looked like. And then you realize, <laughs> no, it's because the ears are all listening. And the thing about the Aten is that um, both male and female are contained within him. And Akhenaten is presenting himself as the son of the Aten, who alone among mortals, actually Nefertiti, his wife, does as well. But they're, they're a kind of trinity. And so... Um, just as Nefertiti is portrayed in quite a masculine sense and in due course after Akhenaten's death seems to have ruled as a, a, a male pharaoh, so Akhenaten in his statues is given kind of feminine characteristics. Um, and this is entirely to do with the kind of the, the theological sense of what the Aten is. Um, and I think that that's the focus of it. It's it's not... I don't, I don't think that... Um, by the 30s, by the 40s, into the 50s, people are kind of very prone to see totalitarian dictators in this figure. Again, I don't think that's quite right um, because Akhenaten is kind of, he's more of, he's closer to Muhammad, I think. He's hes hes someone who, who, who for radical reasons is trying to close down the temples of, other, you know, of Ammon in particular and to give no role whatsoever to other gods. And he is prepared to go as far as he can to encourage people to, to have a stake in that. But, you know, but he's, this is kind of Bronze Age, really. He doesn't have the apparatus of a totalitarian state to enforce that. And the measurement of that is that when he dies, the whole thing basically, you know, like a, a, a stack of cards falls, to, falls down. Okay, well, let's hope no one says that of this podcast. Uh, we're about to take a break. And we'll come back and I think Tom will be talking to us about religion. Knowing Tom, we shall find out. See you in a minute. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up is never a good idea. It can have terrible consequences. For instance, look at all the conflicts throughout history. I wonder how many of them could have been solved if they just talked things out. And Tom, I have a confession for our listeners. As you know, I've been really struggling with anxiety about the massive series that we've got coming on The Rest is History, all the prep we have to do for that series on the French Revolution, the First World War. I mean, it's all mounting up, isn't it? And when we talked it out, I felt so much better now that I got all those crippling anxieties and insecurities off my chest. If you want to talk, you can always talk to me. But if not, then I highly recommend therapy. It can help you learn positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. It empowers you, Dominic, to be the best version of yourself. If you want to give therapy a try, why not check out BetterHelp? It's entirely online, it's convenient and flexible, and it's really easy to get started. You just fill out a brief questionnaire and they'll match you with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash rest is history today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash rest is history. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, 
Was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is History. Uh, We're talking about, we started talking about Tutankhamun and we've gone a little bit further back and we're talking about his uh, father, Akhenaten, who I think is personally, I I find much more interesting. Tom, there's another figure, of course, which is Nefertiti. Now, Nefertiti, we all, I I mean, Nefertiti's been in Doctor Who. Uh, you know, <laughs> well, remember there you go. That's because, the measure of historical because, um, significance, isn't it? She went. She went on an adventure called Dinosaurs on a Spaceship. <laughs> Dinosaurs and Nefertiti. Nefertiti. <laughs> it was the greatest um, program ever made. She was fighting. She was. She and a Victorian explorer were fighting dinosaurs. Right. Um, so Nefertiti, we all remember because the bust. There's a great bust of Nefertiti, and it's this fantastic. It's yes, a head image of her of her head. Yeah. Um, not the other. Let, yes, not the other kind of bust. Um, Tell us about Nefertiti. Is she more than a head? I mean, is she more important historically? She's a, she, she is a, a very significant figure. Um, so the 18th dynasty has two ruling fem- pharaohs who are female. There's Hatshepsut, um, great pharaoh who, wonderful Mortuary Temple, uh, sends a voyage to the mysterious land of Punt. Um, and then you have, it seems, Nefertiti. Um, her, her name means um, a beautiful lady has come. Um Nobody's entirely sure who her parents were. Probably A, though, I think, who, the, the guy who succeeds Tutankhamun. Um, and she is very important in Akhenaten's religion. So, so she signed up to it. She completely She's signs up to it. the centre of it. Uh, and um, when you, uh, in the tomb images, you have the disc of the Aten, and then you have the rays that come down. And at the end of the rays, you have hands. And these hands, they bless Akhenaten and they bless Nefertiti. And Nefertiti, um, unusually for queens who are standing next to their husbands, is the same size. So this is a kind of reflection of the, the huge significance that Nefertiti has. Now, there was... There the, were images, Tom, where they're holding hands and stuff. Yeah. And they're, so, so, they're really extraordinary. Yeah. So the sense of kind of closeness, of connubial closeness is really important. And it was thought that um, 
for, for decades that after about 12 years of Akhenaten's reign that Nefertiti vanishes from the record and that she'd been kind of driven into, into disgrace. But that's no longer the consensus. And the consensus now is that after Akhenaten dies, Nefertiti takes on um, a male pharaonic name and seems to have ruled for several years and then Tutankhamun succeeds her. So she's a, she's a very significant figure too. And, but, but of course, the reason that she lives in the memory um, is, as you say, this incredible bust that is uh, in the Berlin Museum um, that was uh, found in the early 20th century and got taken to Berlin. Uh, and it, it, the one guy who absolutely adored it, um, oddly, was Hitler. Uh, and Hitler was obsessed by Nefertiti. And Goering at one point was going to return the, the, the bust of Nefertiti to the Egyptian government. Uh, and Hitler personally stepped in to stop it because his dream was that um, when he built the great capital of Germania after you know, global triumph, he was going to build a, a massive great um, uh, complex of uh, a museum to Egyptology. And the bust of Nefertiti was going to be kind of under a dome. That's the central object for it. So, um, so what's all that about? Because the Nazis also were really interested in the the Aten story, weren't they? And the worship of the the. I mean, they were they found all that absolutely fascinating. And was that just because they everybody found it fascinating in the yeah, early twentieth well, century? Well, was the, the the way that they can um, they can justify uh, being enthusiastic about the beauty of Nefertiti is that you know her name means the beautiful lady has come. So they argue that, therefore, she wasn't a native Egyptian. They argue that she came of Aryan stock and that this is why she's so beautiful. So she can be enshrined as a, a kind of icon of Aryan womanhood. Um, and so, which is another example of people projecting fantasies onto this, well, onto this well, subject. Th- this, is a very nice, this is a very nice link. Um, 20th century people projecting fantasies back onto the sort of Akhenaten, and Nefertiti, Tutankhamun period, because the most famous person who does this is Sigmund Freud. And yes. I think it's his last book, Moses and Monotheism, where now he has this theory, which has, I think, pretty much been debunked, but which has lasted. I mean, it's created all kinds of conspiracy theories and stuff about Akhenaten and Judaism. So do you want to take us through that? Because this is, really is your yeah, it's Well, so Freud is Freud is is thinking about Akhenaten and the relationship to Moses, because of course Akhenaten is a monotheist and Moses is the legendary founder of you know, the Jewish monotheism. Um, and Akhenaten um, is thinking about this as he is preparing to go into exile. He comes to London. It's the last, as you say, the last thing he's writing. Freud, you mean? So, thinking about yes, it, Freud. Sorry, yeah, the Freudian slip there. Um, <laughs> and not very good. Freud Freud is wondering not. Um, basically, Freud is asking the, the, the question, why, why do people hate the Jews? Why do the Nazis hate us? Why, why are they doing this? And he traces it all the way back to what he sees as a kind of moment of historical trauma. And his thesis is that um, Moses, he points out, is, is a, 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 an Egyptian name. So Mose means child. Um, so Ramesses is you know, son of Ra. Um, and he says that the original Moses was a, 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 an, aton, a, an atonist, so a follower of Akhenaten, who had this kind of elevated, pure, spiritual uh, monotheism. Uh, and he, after the collapse of Akhenaten's regime, he leads the Hebrews out of Egypt and preaches to them this kind of austere and uncompromising monotheism. And 
the uh, the Israelites get so fed up with this that they kill him, and instead they worship um, uh, a Midianite god called Yahweh, uh, and they conflate the identity of the uh, the priest that they've killed with the priest of this uh, Midianite god who's also called Moses, who they also come to call Moses, and so Freud says that. Um, that, that basically uh, the foundations of Judaism are this kind of buried moment of trauma that the Jews have forgotten about, that they killed their father, if you like. <laughs> um, you can see the appeal of this to Freud, that they killed, yeah, yeah. They killed this Atonist father. And basically what Freud is doing is back project, because the thing about, uh, about Akhenaten is that he is reacting against the gods, of he's, Egypt. He's reacting against his own father though, isn't he? Amenhotep the Yes, he's reacting against the father, extent. but he's also reacting against against the gods and it's this that makes him hated and it's this that makes him kind of identified with disease and um why his memory is buried. So essentially Freud is is saying that the origins of what makes the Jews hated by other people is not actually of of Jewish origin. It lies with Egypt and it lies with Akhenaten and his revolution. And you're right, the people you know, I mean this is a kind of again it's a, it's another fantasy, but it uh, it it is expressive of the way in which the the relationship of Akhenaten to Moses and to the tradition of monotheism is something that people kind of remain completely fascinated by and well let's talk about that a bit because that's something that's so crucial to your recent work so in a way we've kind of undersold what a revolution this was so if you partly because I, I think it's hard for people to understand because they think of religion as something that is a kind of an optional bolt-on to your life. You know, you're religious or you're not. You kind of, it's like a hobby. Um, you go to church on a Sunday. But for the Egyptians, and indeed for anybody at that time, you know, religion wasn't a, an accessory. It wasn't part of life. It was life. The gods were around you all the time. You're in, it was your entire cultural and imaginative world. So to break with that and to say, all those gods are balderdash, there's only one god and all the other gods... And all the rest of your imaginative and cultural world yeah. is a lie or is nonsense. I mean, that's that's a greater break than the coming of communism in Russia yeah. in 1917 or or anything like that. Completely, I mean, completely devastating because you're you're erasing the entire mythology that has given meaning to your life and actually particularly to your death. So, in a sense, that's the most radical thing of all. Is that. Um, for the Egyptians, normally when you see the sun going through the sky and then it goes down into the underworld and there's a kind of great fight with, with, with a demon and then it comes back up again. And human beings are intimately bound up with this struggle. And as a, as a, a, a human, you, um, you don't see, you know the gods, but you don't see them. And then when you die, you, that's when you see the gods. But Akhenaten gets rid of all that. So he describes the Aten going through the sky and then the coming of night and all the kind of mythology for it has gone. And so presumably all the mythology about what happens to you when you die has gone as well. And essentially um, everybody in, in, um, in Akhenaten's Egypt, they can see the sun, so they can see the God, but they can't know it because the only person who can know it, in fact, the only two people who can know it are Akhenaten and Nefertiti. So, essentially that's for, must be frightening terrifying, terrifying completely terrifying and i think that that explains the the kind of the violence of the reaction against what he was talking people it was a kind of psychic strain that was was kind of overwhelming 
But then it also explains, I suppose, because it's such a colossal break, because it's the first time somebody has said there's only one God, not lots of gods. But it's also, I guess, the first time that a single individual, a powerful individual has said to, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of other people, what you think is wrong. You must now follow my new order. You know, it's the first time recorded his instance in history of somebody creating a new order, which is something that we're now very familiar with. And because of that, it's left this huge intellectual and cultural afterlife, hasn't it? So Thomas Mann wrote about it in his book, Joseph and His Brothers. Philip Glass has an opera about yes. Um, yes. Akhenaten. And, and scholars still argue about this, don't they? There's a fellow who I know you think very highly of called Jan Asman, um, a German sort of yes. Egyptologist who's yes. written a lot about this. Yes, at, at Heidelberg, who um, wrote, wrote a fantastic book called Moses the Egyptian. Um, which is essentially about it. It, it looks at, at at how Freud kind of interprets it, but traces it all the way back, actually all the way back to um, the Egyptian period. Um, and he argues that the the stories that are told um, in the the Ptolemaic period, so the period after Alexander, after Alexander has conquered um, Egypt, and then into the Roman period, that various stories are told in which um, trace elements of Akhenaten can just about be distinguished. And essentially there's, there's a story by um, an Egyptian priest called Manetho, who is um, living in the reign of the second of the Ptolemies, the, the, the royal Macedonian royal dynasty. And he, Manetho describes how um, there is a, a priest who leads lepers out into the desert and the priest is is from Heliopolis, so the the, the the city of Ra. So there's a kind of identification with the sun there. And he leads people who have, are sick with leprosy and with plague out into the desert. And he gives them um, kind of the, 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 these strange teachings in which everything is upended. So there are no gods. The, the, all, the multiplicity of gods have dissolved. Um, there is only one god. All the dietary rules that the Egyptians hold are turned on their heads. Um, and this priest then comes back and he conquers Egypt. Uh, he has the Hyksos, the uh, Asiatics behind him. Um, they rule and then the, the pharaohs come and they kick them out and throw them out for good. And there's clear kind of garbled trace elements of something about Akhenaten there. But it's And, and this is why the, the association is with Freud and the Jews, is that it's kind of what what Manetho is doing is he's, he's linking this story with the Jews because the priest who does this, Manetho says, um, one of the names that he has is Moses. And so it culminates, you get uh, Tacitus writing in the... Um, beginning of the, of the second century AD, who does this, he, he essentially attributes all this to the Jews. And he says, you know, the Jews, they just turn everything on their heads. They, whatever most people do, the Jews do the opposite. And so he, do you think some of this does lie behind sort of historical anti-Semitism or, or that sort of stuff? I, I think Asma's case is very convincing. I mean, I find it very convincing. And, and I think that the fact that this kind of radical form of monotheism existed, that clearly it was kind of remembered by the Egyptians as a kind of buried trauma, and that then in the, the Hellenistic and Roman period it comes to be associated 
with the Jews so that the Jews then get associated with this kind of these calumnies that do seem to have inherit, you know, descended down the centuries from the actual time of Akhenaten. I mean, it's impossible to prove because, again, this is kind of the, the fascination and the frustration of it. But I think it's I mean, I think it's a, a really fascinating take on it. Really fascinating take. OK, well, let's um, we've got to do some questions, haven't we? Before we do that, I forgot to mention when we came back after the break that we are now doing two podcasts a week. And our next podcast is a fantastic podcast about the history of comedy and comedy in history, um, history as comedy. And our guest is Al Murray. So don't miss that, please. Now, questions. Graham Elliott, Tom, says, was Tutankhamun really run over by a chariot? I hadn't heard this one, but was he? I thought he suffered from scoliosis. Uh, well, um, again, there are all kinds of theories about this. Uh, what the being run over by chariots another another was that he was a victim of a murder kind of smashed on the side of his head uh, the truth is i mean I, I not in any way an expert on this but whenever you look at what people deduce from mummies it seems to change every <laughs> every decade and the classic example of that is the one that was found in kv55 this mysterious tomb um that was found by theodore davis the american oh, yes, millionaire you were gonna, you were gonna um, that. and uh, huge controversy even about what sex it was was it female was it male at what age was he or she when he died and the consensus now is that it was probably uh, a guy called smenkere brilliant name, who may have been <laughs> Tutankhamun's half-brother, may have succeeded uh, Nefertiti. Um, but right, again, I thought Smenkere was a short-lived pharaoh. He is, a, right? he is a short-lived pharaoh. Um, but we know almost nothing about him. But other people have said that this mummy may be Akhenaten, maybe Nefertiti. And this is the problem, is that we know so little, even about the mummies, that in a sense, you, you, you take all the various pieces of this puzzle of which the vast majority are missing, but you've got just enough pieces to kind of put them together to construct what looks like a kind of plausible picture, but you can never be sure. And the, the, the question of how pharaohs die, so how Tutankhamun dies, is a kind of classic example of that. Um, I mean, every decade you will have some new theory that comes up. And I, my, the conclusion that I would come to is, as someone who is in no way qualified to do a kind of cold case autopsy like this, but it would... I, I, going to do it anyway. I, I don't think that, that we'll ever know. I don't think we'll ever know. Right. What about this question? I mean, you mentioned about the gender, the the indeterminate gender of some of these bodies and whatnot, or the confusion. Uh, uh, did the Egyptians have the same... They must have had very different ideas from the ideas that prevailed, let's say, in the last 2,000 years. So Nefertiti ruled as a male pharaoh. What's all that about? Again, hard hard to be sure. <laughs> and And it's not absolutely definite. It's just that this seems to be the kind of the, the overwhelming weight of evidence. And there does seem to have been a fair degree of gender confusion at Amarna. Um, so, you know, there are images uh, of, of, um, of Akhenaten with Nefertiti where it's quite difficult to tell the two of them apart. They're both wearing um, pharaonic headdresses and both kind of have the contours of a female body. Um, it's quite difficult, and the, and the style of also the style of wig in this period is kind of Nubian style, and men and women again they're kind of very similar, and so this all is all part of the fun. <laughs> Adding yeah, yeah. to this, the complexity is you can't even be sure whether you're well, talking so about men or your, women. To add to your to add to your fun, I've basically got your dream question here from Mike Honcho, 
Um, he says, Tom, he doesn't even bother addressing it to me, he just addresses it to you. Tom, do you subscribe to the idea that Akhenaten and Atonism was an important influence on the theology of Christianity? And he then says a second question, which I think is actually a very interesting question. Are there comparable examples you can think of in ancient history of a single individual, one individual who so completely transformed their culture? So let's do the first bit first, Christianity. Do you think it was an influence on Christianity? No, I don't think so, because nobody knew about it. I mean, it's, you know, it's... That it is thought that uh, Psalm 104 is um, and contains within it an echo of um, of the hymn to the art of the hymn to the art, yeah. and, and perhaps you could imagine that I don't know uh, some Syrian subject of Pharaoh received it, and I, I, I mean again, almost impossible to know. There is also the very enigmatic um, line in Acts of the Apostles where it suddenly says, "And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians," which is kind of playing into the you know this idea that Moses was it was was originally an Egyptian but I don't think there's anything I mean I don't think Christians were were aware of this at all and are there other comparable examples you can think of in ancient history of a single individual that so completely well attempted to transform their own culture um in the long run it didn't work I can't again no I can't think of anyone and I think that that's that's the, the that's kind what of makes it un- so interesting, yeah, it? it's the unique fascination of this but that's what makes him seem so modern isn't it? The new capital, the attempt yeah. to completely remake everything. I mean, that feels... Yeah. See, I can't think of that many examples of people doing that before the 20th century. That feels like something you do with 20th century technology and with a kind of 20th century utopianism. I mean, that's the weird thing, that there aren't people doing that in the 12th century or the 15th century. They're just continuing in the patterns of their predecessors. But Akhenaten is doing something unbelievably radical that we now associate with you know, the Pol Pots and the Maos and the Stalins and so on. Yeah, but 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 uh, to pick up on <laughs> my Conte's question, it is also quite kind of monotheistic in the sense of, of um, say, Christianity or, or, or I think particularly Islam. I think the, the, the kind of Islamic anxiety around images, the sense that gods that people have been worshipping are in fact idols and have to be overthrown. Um, if if there's a kind of a prefiguring of... of of Christianity and the idea that Akhenaten is the son of the uh, of the Aten, there is also a, a kind of definite, you know, a sense of Islam, a, 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 the the way in which Muhammad kind of, according to to tradition, uh, purges Mecca of of idol worship. There is something there, and also I tell you what I also detect, Tom. There's a sort of, you know, they're both desert religions. Um, there's an austerity to Atonism, if that's the right word. Yeah, it is, yeah. Uh, that, that it seems to share with, with Islam. There's a kind of simplicity in, um, I, I don't want to say, well, I mean, purity, maybe. There's a, there's a sort of a, a, a harsh simplicity to Atonism that you can see why it would intoxicate. It would frighten some and intoxicate others. Yeah, and I you think... Know, the, yeah, and I think the harshness is, is the word. I, I, I mean, I think it, it left very little for people who weren't pharaoh. And I think that was the problem. Yeah. All right, we've just got time for a couple more questions. So lots of questions we had about Moses and monotheism, which we've kind of done. Tom Slist asks quite a different question. What do you think of Velikovsky's idea that Akhenaten was the inspiration for Oedipus? Oh, good question. Have you, are you au fait with Emmanuel Velikovsky? I, I, I actually read him. He's bedside reading for me. <laughs> 
So Velikovsky was um, very controversial. I think he was an astronomer originally who argued that um, Venus was in fact a chunk of Jupiter that in historical times had had uh, kind of migrated and that this inspires all the kind of uh, disaster apocalyptic myths that you get. Uh, and kind of as an extension of that, having... You know, radically uh, rewritten astronomy. He then rewrites the entire history of of the of the Near East as well, and argues that the um, the conventional uh, dating is completely wrong. So he identifies. He, he says basically he he kind of cuts out a thousand years of history, so that um, uh, Hatshepsut, the eighteenth dynasty queen, is associated with um, the Queen of Sheba, who, according to conventional dating, had lived centuries and centuries after Hatshepsut. So. It, it it it's let's say it's not broadly accepted, although there are there are, there are a couple of uh, David Roll is is the kind of example of, of historians who do make play with this this idea that actually there are centuries that are kind of missing, and that if you get rid of them then you can kind of map things up much more much more neatly. Um, but but uh, Velikovsky's theory of Akhenaten, as, as Tom Sis says, is that he was the inspiration for Oedipus. And um, Velikovsky identifies Amenhotep III with Laius, who is Oedipus's um, uh, father. And he identifies um, uh, Amenhotep III's wife, Queen Tia, with Jocasta, who is um, uh, the woman who um, Oedipus ends up marrying. And there are all kinds of play made with the fact that um, Oedipus uh, lived in Thebes and uh, Akhenaten lived in Thebes. And there are sphinxes in Egypt and there's a sphinx in the Oedipus story. And it's... You know, it seems a bit desperate. Given yeah, it's, 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 it's it's kind of fun, but it's nothing more than fun. So, what do I think of it? It's it's a gameplay. It's right. clearly not true. Well, my wife's just brought me a cup of tea, so that feels to me like unless you really want to answer that question from Michael Ronson, oh, about the beautiful the, the beautiful tri- lady has come. Um, yeah, <laughs> who made the big triangly things? Michael Ronson said, "Aliens or or not aliens, Tom?" Uh, I don't think aliens. No. Oh, how disappointing. Well, that's it for today. We've got Al Murray to come on Thursday, uh, who's even more interesting than any of the pharaohs, or indeed Tom and me. Thank you for listening. Thanks, Tom. Bye for now. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.